The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Think back two years when we were in the midst of the first lockdown of the COVID pandemic and an event took place in Minneapolis which shocked the world. It was the murder of George Floyd by a policeman, Derek Chauvin, and we saw it. We saw the footage and it shocked everybody and it created an enormous backlash, not just in the United States, but internationally. So a new book has been written. His name is George Floyd. It's been written by two Washington Post journalists, Robert Samuels and the man who joins us now, Tulo Olorunipa. Good evening. Thank you very much for joining us here on the programme. First of all, who was George Floyd? George Floyd was a complicated man. He was someone who grew up poor in the third ward of Houston, which is one of the segregated communities that we have here in the United States. And he had ambitions. He wanted at first when he was a child to be a justice on the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Uh, as, a, as his life developed, as he faced a number of hardships, in, in part due to poverty, in part due to racism, he saw his dreams and his, his ambitions run into a number of roadblocks. He ran into institutional, structural issues from a poor housing system, uh, public housing, where he grew up, to an underfunded education system where he got uh, subpar education, to a criminal justice system that was waiting for him uh, as it was waiting for other poor black youth who did not have a good education and made any mistakes, uh, and he entered into that criminal justice system. And then later in life, he suffered from a number of health issues from addiction to anxiety to depression. And despite that, despite all of the challenges that he faced, he was someone who continually and constantly strived for a better life. He left his hometown of Houston to move to Minneapolis to try to get a fresh start. And we all know what happened in the end. Uh, He met his end, unfortunately, in Minneapolis under the knee of a police officer and his death sparked the greatest and largest civil rights movement globally that we've seen in that generation. And we wanted to tell his story because he is a historic figure and he was a normal, ordinary man with ordinary problems who faced um, extraordinary challenges over the course of his life and all the way up until the final moments of his life. This book is a product of over 400 interviews, but what also is fascinating is the family history that you have uncovered. And go back generations to an ancestor of George Floyd's who tried to make something of himself and effectively had the land that he had assembled after escaping slavery taken from him. That's exactly right. We went back into the archives of history to understand why George Floyd came into the world poor. Uh, Unfortunately, in his family history, there is this legacy of actually great wealth that was stripped away from his great-great-grandfather. His great-great-grandfather was born enslaved, but after he received his freedom after the Civil War here in the U.S., he worked hard for 30 years. He worked hard with his family, farming and working on the land, and he was able to purchase 500 acres of land, which is uh, something that made him one of the wealthier people at that time, one of one of the wealthiest black men in his community. Um, but in part because uh, black wealth was not a welcome thing in the South, uh, in the U.S. at the time, he lost all of that land and it was stripped away in unscrupulous business deals and by tax authorities that wanted to take away the wealth that black people had back at the end of the, at the end of the 1800s at the turn of the century. 
and he was not able to transfer any of that wealth to his descendants. And George Floyd's great-grandparents and grandparents worked as sharecroppers and were not able to build any wealth because they were taken advantage of by the people that they worked for. And despite working for generations and working hard uh, manual labor for years and years, George Floyd was not able to benefit from any of that. He came into the world poor, and his family had to struggle just like his ancestors had struggled. And uh, it was really interesting for us to show that history. And we also showed a comparative history of the family that owned the, the Floyd uh, the Floyd ancestors uh, in, during the time of slavery. They actually happened to be a family that originated from Scotland and was also started off their American journey without much money. But they were able to build wealth. They were able to build uh, generational wealth in part because America was a much more welcoming place to immigrants from Europe than it was to enslaved people who had moved over from Africa, traveled over and been, you know, and been shipped over uh, as part of the slave trade. So it, it just shows sort of how, even though people say slavery happened such a long time ago, we're still experiencing the impact of that. George Floyd still experienced the impact of that because he came into the world as a poor man, as a poor boy, in part because that happened generations earlier. You were able to discover all of that. Did George Floyd know his family history and what had happened? Yes, he, he did know. It was something that was passed down through generations. It was passed down by his mother, and it was in the le- lessons that he received from his mother, who, who basically told him and his siblings, you can never make an, a mistake in this country because you're already born with two strikes against you. You're poor, you're black, and you're trying to make it in America. You have to Make sure you do everything right, because if you make any mistake, there are several trapdoors waiting for you. And they told, she told them the history of their family, the history of the great-great-grandfather that had tried to do the right thing and had tried to make a, a living for the family and how that was targeted and seized by people who did not like to see a wealthy black man in their community. So that racial terror that passed down over the course of several generations was something that Floyd knew intimately, and he knew that the decks were stacked against him, and that he would gonna he was gonna have to work twice as hard in order to achieve his dreams. And when you hear that as a young boy, uh, it can go in a number of different ways. It can make you work hard, but it can also be demoralizing to know that you know you could have been born as an as a wealthy heir of someone who had been industrious and who had worked hard, but instead you're starting life behind your peers because of that history of land theft and that history of abuse. And it can be demoralizing. And as you see issues of racism and as you see yourself being treated differently, as you see police targeting your community and not targeting other communities where there are similar things happening with drugs and whatnot, it can be demoralizing. And George Floyd definitely felt that agony as he tried to navigate the various systems that we have in this country. The civil rights movement, of course, of the 1960s was meant to create a position of equality. But you focus quite a lot on the impact of Richard Nixon's war on drugs in the 1970s. I think maybe positing that it wasn't as much a war on drugs as a war on black communities. Yeah, it was a a selective war on drugs. The drugs that were being used in communities like the, the community where George Floyd grew up uh, were the drugs that were being targeted by police. We have studies that show that, you know, drug use is done at a similar rate in black communities and white communities. There's no monopoly on who uses drugs in this country, but when it comes to the consequences, when it comes to who gets arrested, who gets targeted, which communities 
are targeted for drug stings. It's often the black communities. It's often the poor communities. It's often the places that can't afford lawyers and can't afford ways to get out of it, not the college campuses where drugs are being used or the suburban parties where drugs are being used at, at similar rates. So uh, that war on drugs began with Richard Nixon, but continued for several presidents after him, both Democrat and Republican presidents continued this, this massive war on drugs. And we saw our incarceration rate in this country, which is something that is disproportionate and um, has no equal anywhere in the world. It increased over the course of several decades. It increased several fold and we locked up hundreds of thousands of people, um, often uh, young black men and locked them locked them up and gave them no training, gave them no rehabilitation and, and then released them back into the community where you know several of them ended up getting arrested again. Um, and George Floyd was no exception to that that trend. Uh, he was caught up in it just like many of the people from his community were caught up in it. And we wanted to show how decisions that are made in Washington, D.C. and, and state capitals uh, across the country had a very real impact on these communities and decimated these communities with the departure and disappearance of thousands and thousands of young men like Floyd. And we're still seeing the impact of that even today. So we all, anyone who's listened to this will have seen what happened to George Floyd back in May 25th, 2020. And they'll have seen the circumstances in which he died. And yet there were people, almost apologists for Derek Chauvin and for the police, suggesting almost as if George Floyd had it coming to him because of his own criminal background. Now, that's deeply insulting to many people who believe that human life should not be treated as cheaply. But you weren't afraid in your book to look at the wrong that George Floyd had done in his life either, were you? We weren't, and in part because he wasn't. He uh, agonized over the mistakes that he made. He spoke and said, you know, I've got my flaws, which is like everyone else. And he shed tears over some of the decisions that he made and the fact that he had to pay the consequences of those decisions. He spent a lot of time behind bars. He suffered and was not able to find a job because of those decisions. But yes, we wanted to tell the full story. We're journalists and we were telling a man's life and someone who spent a third of his adult life behind bars, telling the story of his criminal history was going to be part of it, telling the story of the mass incarceration that led him to spend that much time behind bars was part of the broader story. And we think it sheds light on the decisions that he had to make and growing up in a community that was ravaged by crime and drugs and not having uh, many options. The decisions that he ended up making are similar to the decisions that were made by several other people of similar means. And we wanted to show how that system got created, how it shepherded people like Floyd into the criminal justice system and how he had to deal with the reverberations of that and the consequences of that and how much that impacted his life and made it difficult for him to escape his past. He left Houston for Minneapolis because he wanted to escape that past and have a fresh start, but it was so difficult because he had so many things that were haunting him from his past, including some of the decisions that he made. Uh, And we wanted to make sure that we got into all of that and, and explained it for readers so they know who he was, what he faced, and how he made the decisions that he did. George Floyd's death led to something of a revival in the Black Lives Matter campaign, which had started in previous years. But has anything really changed? Has anything really improved for black people? Because unfortunately, watching from this side of the Atlantic, it would appear that racist attitudes among some white people 
seem to have hardened over the last few years. Yeah, there is. Um, I don't want to downplay the fact that there has been some change. The conversation around systemic racism has changed since Floyd died. There are more corporations and cultural institutions willing to accept the fact that systemic racism is a real thing and exists and needs to be combated. But when you look deeper and you see what actually is happening, what people are actually willing to do when it comes to legislation and changes uh, to make the lives of black people better, to make the lives of minorities better, there instead, like you said, there has been a backlash uh, here in the United States. There is this movement on the right to uh, ban the discussion or the discussion of race and American history uh, and the more unsavory parts of the American story and the American legacy, which includes slavery, which includes Jim Crow discrimination, and instead focus on only the future, focus on only the good parts of our history. And that's in part a backlash and a reaction to what happened uh, to George Floyd and the movement that sprouted out, sprout, sprouted up after he died. So there is this backlash, and it's hard to, to see Floyd's death for uh, a big civil rights movement when this backlash has been dominating our politics and many of the people who said that they were going to uh, take up Floyd's cause politically have instead found themselves either ousted from office or losing elections because there seems to be more power right now and, and politically in the movement against uh, talking about race and against addressing the issues of racial inequality than there is on the side of trying to speak about these issues and address these issues in a holistic way. Tomo, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word Today FM. The book is called His Name is George Floyd. It's been written by The Washington Post, journalists Robert Samuels and Tolo Olorunipa. Thank you very much for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.